When you were growing up, were there adults in your life, parents, teachers, coaches, who seemed to give you the same pieces of advice over and over and over and over and over? Did you have those? I smiled. This was not in my notes, but I made eye contact with Jeff Bubach as I started here. I know Jeff and Jay's dad was a, was a walking catalog of pithy pieces of advice that got repeated over and over. Like, um, if you just get started, you're halfway done. Wasn't that close? Something like that? Um, I know my mom, whenever we left the house, she would always say, make good decisions. Uh, as a teacher in my classroom, I used to say over and over and over, uh, my last classroom, a kid even made me a poster that said this. On my wallet said, learn to want to do what you need to do. And your parents and teachers probably had things you heard over and over and over as well. Why do, it, why do adults, why do parents do that? Why do they say these things over and over and over and over? I think it's because... They've identified something that is important, but that is difficult to learn. Or something that's important, that you know as an adult it's important, but it's difficult for kids to think it's important at the time. And I think if we would go back through these things, isn't it true that as a young person for something you really don't want to do, what you do is you just put off starting it, right? So that piece of advice if you just get started, it's like you're halfway done. There's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that. When my mom would tell us make good decisions, it's because she knew as an adult that sometimes there are, there are decisions that seem minor and seem small to kids at the time that can have big consequences. When I taught kids in school, You've got to learn to want to do what you need to do. Isn't that a big part of growing up? When you're young, the only thing you want to do is whatever feels fun at the time. But part of growing up is understanding there are things that I need to do. And I need to learn to want to do those things. Isn't that why we as adults today might be the ones saying these things over and over? These are things that are hard to learn. They're important though. Even though at the time, to young people especially, they don't always, always seem like it. Well, we're in the middle of a long teaching of Jesus called the Olivet Discourse. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives talking to his disciples about the end times, about when he was, is going to return one day. They had asked him, when are you coming back? And how will we know the time's getting close? And he's had a couple of points or maybe two parts of the same point, that he has said over and over and over and over. You won't know when I'm coming back, so you have to live ready. You have to be ready all the time. You don't know when you're going to be standing before me. So you got to make sure you're ready all the time. Here, when I say he said it over and over and over again, I mean, check this out. 24, verse 36. But as for the day and the hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. Verse 42. Therefore, stay alert. Why? Because you do not know 
On what day your Lord will come? Verse 44. Therefore, you must also be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. The last verse today. Therefore, stay alert. Why? Because you do not know the day or the hour. Are you, are you catching a theme here? Right? This is all in the... Sometimes it's hard to tell the main idea of a passage of Scripture. That's not the case with the Olivet Discourse. If you read this baby and miss the main idea, you're just not paying attention because he says it over and over and over and over. And then, like we're going to see today, he teaches a bunch of parables that that are about the same point. Why would Jesus make say this over and over and over? Because it's hard to learn. It's important. And it can seem like During our daily lives, it's not that important. And was it hard to learn? Was it hard to learn for the disciples? Yes, it was. And I want to show you how we know that. Sometimes I love the disciples. They make me feel so good about my own ignorance and thick-headedness. Has Jesus made himself perfectly clear that they're not going to know the time? So they got to be ready. Yes. Well, a few months into the future from this conversation... The risen Jesus gathers the disciples back together on top of another hill. And as soon as he gets them together, guess what question they ask Jesus? Acts 1 verse 7. So when they had gathered together, they began to ask him, So Lord, is this the time? Is this the time where you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Guess what his answer is? You can't know the time. These things are important, but they're hard to learn. It's easy to, it's easy in life, isn't it? To not live with an understanding of someday I'm going to be before the Lord and this day is going to matter then. Today we're going to look at the first two of a series of three parables that's going to show us different facets, aspects of what readiness looks like. I titled this sermon, Live Ready. Well, what does it look like if I'm ready? Well, Jesus is going to teach two parables. We'll see the third one next week about what readiness in the life of a Christian looks like. Now, a parable is a made-up story to prove a real point, right? And usually parables teach one main point. Today, the main point is be ready. And here's one aspect of what readiness looks like. And there'll be positive consequences for those who are ready, who live ready. There'll be negative consequences for those who don't live ready. But we can't press these parables too far because the the negative consequences of these parables, and we're going to read them in a minute, are really terrible, really awful. And if we're not careful, we can read these and think, boy, if I'm not doing the right thing when Jesus comes back or Jesus calls me home, he's going to send me to hell forever. That's not the point of these parables. These these parables were not told to teach who gets into heaven and who goes to hell. You know how we know that? Because Jesus Jesus doesn't teach anybody what to believe at all in these parables. This is just about be ready. And I I want you to know there'll be positive consequences for your readiness. And there will be negative consequences for a lack of readiness. Whoops. I think back me up one said I overclicked. There we go. 
The first parable we're going to read, and we're going to read one and then study it, and then we'll read the second one and study it. I call this parable, and this is my own made-up name, I call this the parable of the servant with two choices. You remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody ever read a Choose Your Own Adventure book back in the day? These were these books where you could, you read for a while, and it was like you were the main character, and the, the, the main character had a choice. And at the bottom of the page, you would say, if you choose to do this, turn to page uh, 58. If you choose to do that, turn to page 136, right? I think this is sort of Jesus's choose-your-own-adventure story. He tells the parable of one servant, and then he shows us what will happen to that one servant if he, does, if he makes the good decision or the bad decision, okay? And what we learn is that to live ready looks like simple obedience and godly character. Jesus has been hammering away at this point. You don't know when you're going to meet me. You don't know when I'm going to return. So be ready. What's it look like to be ready? Simple obedience and godly character is one aspect of living ready. Let's read this parable. If you have your Bible, you can open to Matthew 24. We're going to start in verse 45. This is the the parable of the slave with two choices. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave or the faithful and wise servant whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, that the master will put that faithful slave in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, there's the parable of a servant with two choices. I love the way Jesus begins this parable. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? And the master is put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. But we could stop right here. Who who then is the faithful and wise slave? That's the question that Jesus will be answering over the next three parables. Who is the faithful and wise slave? Have I ever mentioned that when you're reading your Bible and God asks questions, you should pay attention when God asks questions? Have I mentioned that? Good. I meant to. There's the question. Who is the faithful and wise servant? That's what this first one answers. A quick note about all of these parables. There's going to be three parables in a row where Jesus teaches about assigning people some tasks, and then the master's gone for a long time and suddenly shows up and returns, right? And the ones who are sort of caught doing good are rewarded, and the ones who are caught doing bad uh, are punished. And I've heard these taught sort of like this. What do you want to be doing when Jesus returns? Ever heard something like that? You don't want to be caught when he returns, when you meet Jesus. You don't want to be caught being unfaithful. That's 
I guess the sentiment is supposedly good, but that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Does Jesus have to sneak up on you to know what you are doing? Like, will he not know what you're doing until he comes back real fast and looks? No. So our master can see all the time. And Jesus cares more about routine, daily faithfulness than he cares about what you were doing five minutes before you came to meet him. Does that make sense? In this parable, the slave with two choices. What is the task that this servant has been assigned to do by the master? What's the task? It's right here. He's in the food service industry. That's his task. Now we could kind of allegorize that, which would be fine because this is a parable. That may, This is mainly about, this is about teaching the household of God or something like that. But I think we miss a main point if we do that. Jesus wanted to, to, to show people what readiness looks like. And he used an example of somebody who cooks meals for, the, for everybody else in this house, in this household. Notice, he didn't put this slave in, in charge of like neurosurgery or you know, a multinational corporation. This is, this is about food service. When the master comes back, how will this servant be judged based on how he does doing what? Only what he's been asked to do, food service. The master will not show back up and say, man, are you still just a cook? I'd think by now you would have started a business. I mean, you could have written a book by now. Man, a lot of people do a lot more impressive stuff than, than, than you here. That's not the way the judgment will go down, will it? In fact, our assumption should be if the master comes back and this guy has neglected what he was told to do in order to do something more impressive, what will the master say? This is great that you started, you know, you started this business, this nonprofit, this whatever, but that's not what I asked you to do. You'll be judged based on what I assigned you to do. That's a really important thing to remember. Routine faithfulness where God assigned me. And God assigns us to be pastors, to be popcorn exporters, whatever they do, to, uh, you know, to drive a Frito-Lay truck, right? To be a school administrator. God assigns us all kinds of places, Right? So I'm not telling you you need to quit your job and do something else. No, this guy was assigned a, a job in the food service industry. That's where he was assigned. But, but God cares about our routine faithfulness where he put us. That's an important lesson to remember. I always think of moms when I think of things like this. Here's why. I think, although I've never been a mom, full disclosure, it seems to be very easy to get so covered up in all of the duties of momming that it's really easy to, to feel like, man, nobody notices this. Who cares? I'm not making my mark. 
right? But if, that, if, if, that, if you've been assigned the task of momming, God cares about your momming. And it is significant. By the same token, if God hasn't assigned you the task of being a parent, God does not look at you and wonder what is wrong. If God has not assigned you to the job of being a husband or a wife, God does not think you are broken and less than. God cares about how faithful is my servant where he or she is planted. And God will not show back up and wonder why we haven't started a nonprofit if he hasn't assigned us. Now, is it hard to tell sometimes where God has assigned us? It is. But that's a story for a different, for a different sermon. God cares about my daily routine faithfulness or lack thereof. Lack thereof. Now, why is it difficult to stay faithful where God has put me? Is it hard sometimes to continue to do the same things day after day after day and be faithful? Yes. And I think we fail in our faithfulness in those things for the same reason this guy failed in the second half of this made-up story. But if this guy decides to make the bad decision and become the evil slave, in verse 48, oh man, I have got to back up. I'm sorry. I skipped something very important. I want you to notice the reward for faithfulness. Verse 47. Verse 47. The master comes, finds him just being a good cook. Truly I say to you, the master will put the faithful slave in charge of all his possessions. Do you see what the reward is there? Does the slave get all of the master's possessions? Is that what it says? No, he's put in charge of. He used to just be in charge of cooking. He was faithful in a little. Now he's faithful in much. Now he's going to be like a steward over all of the master's possessions. Here's what we learn there. You know what the reward is for, faithful, for routine faithfulness in service? More service. Isn't that awesome? If you're a faithful servant, God says, you get a long vacation and a sabbatical. Is that what he says? No, he says, if you're faithful and serving a little, I'll let you serve more. I think this is part of our eternal rewards. If we're faithful where we're planted before we go to meet the Lord in his millennial kingdom, when we're heavenly bureaucrats, we'll be entrusted with much or little based on how faithful we were where we were planted. And a real servant, the desire of the the heart of a real servant is to serve the master. Now we can go on to the unfaithful servant. Why is it hard to be faithful on a routine basis? Well, for this guy, the evil slave says in his heart, man, my master sure has been gone a long time. You see what his initial problem is there? You see what his first mistake is there? See, I think this guy, he held out a long time. I think he was a faithful food service worker 
And then thoughts like this started to creep in. Man, nobody even notices this. I've been doing the same thing over and over and over. And what reward does he get for doing his job faithfully over and over and over? Not a lot, really. He's a cook, so he probably gets more complaints than he gets attaboys, would be my guess. And so he starts to think, gosh, I didn't, I didn't think this would take this long. And so he starts to look for ways where he can get more instant gratification than waiting for his master to return and reward him the way the master would. And in the story, he starts to beat up fellow slaves. I think we should read that as he finds ways to be above, to dominate, to be superior. I'm going to take the task God gave me to do and make sure somehow that I'm above and over other people. In this case, physically. Because it always finished this for me. It always feels better to feel. It always feels better to feel better. And then he hits the party scene because there's instant gratification there. Part of being a faithful servant is being content with delayed gratification. I know my master is going to show up and he rewards routine faithfulness. The hard part about routine faithfulness is it gets so, well, routine. And it's hard to stay faithful in the routine. But does God care? He does. That's why he told us this parable. I care about your routine faithfulness and godly character. Coach John Wooden used to say, the greatest test of your character is how you act when nobody's watching. But we know our master's always watching. The punishment this guy receives when his master shows up quickly is really awful. Uh, however your Bible um, translates this, in the story, this guy gets dismembered for being unfaithful. That seems a little harsh. I think Jesus wanted us to know that there would be negative consequences for a lack of routine faithfulness. Um, and then after he's dismembered, he's, the Lord's not done with him. <laughs> he's assigned a place with the hypocrites. Now why in the second part of this parable... Why would that guy be assigned a place with hypocrites? You know why? Because that's a pretty good picture of hypocrisy. Because he is a hypocrite. He went with the rest of the hypocrites. How was he hypocritical? Here's how. Did that slave, did he know the master? Yes. Did he know the master was going to come back? Yes. Did he know he would be rewarded or punished? based on how faithful he was to the task. Yes, I believe he did. He just lived as if that was not true. He lived like the master couldn't see him, wouldn't find out, and this would all be okay. And that's the parable of the servant with two choices, where we learn that to live ready looks like simple obedience, where I'm planted, godly character at the task's I've been given. It's so easy to draw my feeling of how I'm doing in life by looking at where I'm not planted and what everybody else has and what everyone else is doing and start to chase something other than what I've been given. 
And that's where I'll really be judged. The next parable is the beginning, the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. And it's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. The parable of the ten bridesmaids is taught taught to us to teach us that to live ready includes constant, habitual preparation and spiritual growth, maturity. To live ready includes just constant, making the habit of preparing myself spiritually, biblically. We'll see how that is taught. Let's read this one. Parable of the Ten Bridesmaids, beginning of Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent or wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying... They all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. It's go time. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go go instead to the dealers and buy some oil for yourselves. And while the unwise ones, the unprepared bridesmaids, were going away to make the purchase, that's when the groom came. And those who were ready went in with the groom to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. There's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. This is the story. Uh, This is to teach us that living ready is a marathon, not a sprint. And Jesus tells us there's ten women who get invited to participate in a wedding. That's why I call the ten bridesmaids. And weddings were different in the first century Israel. Um... Marriages started when two dads, the dad of a future groom, the dad of a future bride, made a deal to marry their children, okay? And when that deal was made, those two were, it was like they were officially married. It took a divorce to separate that, but they didn't live together as a couple at all. There was this long period of betrothal. Everybody knew one day that these two are going to be fully married, they're, they're sort of are, but they're not yet. And then, at whenever the right time was the right time, after the, the groom had prepared a place for them to live, the groom would, would go to his wife's, his future father-in-law, his house, and he would get his bride, and then he would take her to go and live with him in his house. And around that last part, that's when the party took place when this thing was going to be official. And here's what seems to be going on here. Ten bridesmaids were enlisted by the groom. And I picture this as 
they're, they're supposed to take their lamps out and they're going to light the path between the bride's old house and the bride's new house. And I picture this as they're supposed to be far enough away where you can just barely see that light from, from daddy's house. And we're going to go toward that light. And then there over in the distance, there's supposed to be another lamp and another lamp. And, and part of this parade on the way to the party is going to be this really romantic torch lit path. Isn't that cool? Uh, Jesus actually moonlighted as a wedding planner. I'll bet you didn't know that. That's what this story is. Except because it's a made up story. The bridegroom tells him to go get in their place and then he waits a long, long time. It's almost like they're out there during the whole betrothal. They're out there a long, long time. And five of the bridesmaids took extra oil with them. They were prepared. And the other five bridesmaids didn't take any extra oil. They weren't prepared. And they were out there so long that when the groom finally shows up, the ones that didn't take extra oil, they, don't have, they can't let their light shine. They can't do their job. And all of a sudden, they got a problem on their hands, don't they? Except, did this problem happen all of a sudden? When did their problem happen? When they weren't prepared. And so somebody says, it's go time. Here comes the groom. And the ones are running around, they don't have oil. And so they go to their friends and say, hey, will you share your oil with us? And then all 10 of us will have oil and it'll be great. And we might be surprised at the response they get. Are you surprised by this? What do the prepared bridesmaids tell the unprepared bridesmaids when they ask for oil? They say, you go buy your own oil. I'm not giving you any of mine. Well, that doesn't seem very Christ-like, does it? Isn't Jesus supposed to teach us to like share and give? Yes, it's a story for a different sermon. Remember, these are made-up stories to prove one main point. And here's the problem with sharing. The ones who are prepared... Say, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Here's what they're saying. They assess the amount of oil that's left over and they say, listen, we still don't know how long it's going to be before he gets here. And if we pour our, half of our oil into your lamps, we're all going to burn out. Then there's not going to be any of these romantic torches lit. And the groom is going to be embarrassed. And his plan is not going to happen and I know you want me to share my oil with you because you don't want to be embarrassed. But sister, this ain't about you. This is about the groom. And his plan has to work. So if you want to be a part of his plan, you better hurry up and see if you can still get prepared. And as the story goes, they miss their time to shine. And they miss out on the party. Now, what do we learn from all of that? We learn that preparedness, being alert, living ready, is a marathon and not a sprint. I would say it this way. As Christians, one part of living, of being ready, is as Christians, we have to continually and constantly be filling our lamps. We have to continuously and constantly be filling our lives, our hearts, 
our minds with the right fuel because maybe you've heard this somewhere else before. We are supposed to be a light. Didn't Jesus say that? Earlier in this book, he told his disciples, did Jesus say in Matthew, did Jesus say, I am the light of the world? No, he told his disciples, you are the light of the world. And nobody lights their lamp and hides it under a bushel. No, you're supposed to be a light for me that everyone can see. Let your light show, so shine before men that people see the stuff you do and glorify my Father in heaven by coming to know Christ as Savior. The main job of the church, Jesus will tell at the very end of the book of Matthew, he'll tell the disciples, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. That can be compared to shining your light. So you know what we as the church are supposed to be doing? Making disciples. Now let me ask you this about you. Were you born ready to make disciples? Were you born with everything you needed to know in order to shine the light of Jesus and attract people to him? Were you born that way? The answer is no. We're supposed to prepare to be that way. Do you know a lot of what, we're, what we do when we gather together? Because, do you know, this building is not the church. We call it that just because that's just what a place like this is called. But we, the people, are the church. And the church is supposed to do the church's job outside of the walls of this building. When we come here, you know what we're supposed to be doing? You know one real reason why we come here? About half of the reason we come here? We're lamp filling. That's what we're doing. We open the Word together and we pour the Word into ourselves so that when we leave here, we can let our light shine. We don't come here to shine our light. Nobody can see us here. We come here. We go to Bible studies. We get in mentoring relationships. We read our Bibles on a daily basis to fill our lamps because there's a million things in this world that can drain our fuel, that try to, that try to snuff out our fire. But we need to continually be preparing and filling. You know why? Because we don't know when it'll be our time to shine. Not only do you not know when you'll stand before the Lord, you don't know when it's your time to shine. You ever been in a conversation and you started to think, man, this is kind of going, maybe somebody's hurting, maybe somebody needs answers. This is kind of going in a spiritual or a religious way. And you think, this is probably would be a good time to say something about the Lord or about the gospel or something and I have no idea what I'm doing here. Have you ever been there? I've been there, right? I heard Rachel share this story at conference. Uh, when we first started being discipled, somebody was first starting to pour oil into us. Uh, we had friends who recognized the difference. And a friend of ours asked Rachel, like, man, you're different than when you moved here. What, like, what's going on? What is it with you? And as Rachel told the story, she said, I just flubbed all over myself and gave a terrible answer that I regret to this day. You know what she did? She said, 
I'm not giving an answer like that next time. Because it's our job to prepare to shine our light. Could you share the gospel with somebody? If I asked you to, what is the gospel? Could you do it? You know, one reason why I remind us, I try to remind us a different way every single Sunday what the gospel is. Have you noticed? I hope you've never been here that I didn't say the good news of what Jesus did for us at the cross. I try to do it over and over different ways because part of my job is to equip the saints to shine their life, their light. Man, I would practice that because you don't know when it's your time to shine. You know what happens a lot? Somebody comes to, to you or somebody here and they have this problem and they're really struggling and they don't know what to do and they, they, there's, a, there's a perfect opportunity to share and they say something like, uh, you, should, you should go talk to my pastor. And I'm here for that. I am. But that might not be the, my time to shine. That might be your time to shine. Found this quote studying for this passage. Back me up one, Sid. It's in there somewhere. There it is. Diligence in the future cannot atone for negligence in the past. An old preacher named W.F. Adney wrote that. Diligence in the future cannot atone for negligence in the past. Someday, especially if you pray for opportunities like that, you are going to have your time to shine the light of Jesus in someone's life. But it really doesn't matter how excited you get at that point if you haven't prepared up to that point. Diligence in the future cannot atone for negligence in the past, so we have to be faithful in the present. That's the point of the, of the parable. And you know, the party that these bridesmaids don't get to go into, they don't get to share in that part of the wedding Feast. You know in the Bible what the real wedding is in the New Testament? Who is the bride and who is the groom that comes for the bride? Jesus Christ has been preparing a place for his church. And the, the church is the bride of Christ. And he's going to come back and take his bride home. We're supposed to be inviting more and more people to the wedding. And there is no, there's a special kind of joy at doing the job the church is designed to do, make disciples, shine our light. And we get into heaven based only on what we come to understand and believe and trust in about Jesus Christ. But we only get to celebrate a, a new member of the wedding party when we're a part of that process, which just, it takes preparation. Now this week when I, when I email out the, the bulletin, I'll, I'll attach somehow in there just some materials, some preparation materials. Maybe this is the week you begin to prepare how to share the simple message of the gospel with somebody else. And then maybe you can pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity to shine the light he gave you. Jesus began with this question, who is the faithful and wise servant? And then he taught us two, 
two parables to teach us. The one who, who lives ready, the faithful and wise servant, first is the one whose life is characterized by godly character and simple obedience where I am planted. And second, he said that the one who's ready is the one who continually is fueling his or her fire so that he or she can be a light for Jesus in a dark world. And if I don't do number one, if I'm not faithful, if I am a hypocrite, if I'm not trustworthy, if I'm not faithful where I plan it, then my words when I try to do number two will be empty. They'll think, I don't know what fire you're, what fuel you're trying to sell because I see your life. But by the same token, I can do number one all the time. I can be faithfully obedient and good. But that won't help me be a part of my purpose if I don't prepare to shine my light. These two work together. That's why Jesus told him in tandem. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We don't want to be that seed that gets really excited and, and grows up real fast. Then the sun comes out and it just sort of withers. We want to be constantly fueling, nourishing our hearts, praying for opportunities to shine His light in a dark world. Pray with me and we'll move to communion. Father, Thank you for the sobering reminder of what readiness looks like. Now you've reminded us in some ways how not ready we are sometimes. Where we look around at everything we are not, and we begin to judge our worth and our value based on how we maybe measure up in the world's eyes. Thank you for reminding us that you care about routine, faithfulness, godly character. And then thanks for reminding us that that's not enough. God, you want us to be prepared to make disciples, to shine your light. I want to pray for this church and those visiting that you would use us. You would give us opportunities to shine your light in a dark world. God, lead us to prepare because excitement in the future cannot negate negligence in our past. So we have to be faithful and diligent in the present. We love you, Lord. Bless our time in communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Through the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talked about the end times. We've talked about judgment. You know, the Bible says that we are all as Christians. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you believe that's coming? That's what Jesus was teaching about today. We're going to be judged based on how faithful we were where he put us. But there's another judgment Jesus doesn't talk about during the Olivet Discourse. But boy, are we going to quickly get there as soon as the Olivet Discourse is over. Because the most important judgment has already happened. The most important judgment, more important than when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he sees, judges how faithful you were as a Christian, way more important than that was the judgment that happened 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem 
cross where all of the sins of the world were placed on Jesus Christ and and your sin, if you believe on him, your sin was judged, was condemned, was punished, was destroyed. And he rose from the dead to prove he has victory over that. But on our own, you or I would not. If we would die in our sins, our sins not being judged, if we would ever be judged for our sin, we'd be condemned to an eternity in hell. Which is why for you and I, the most important judgment is the judgment he went through on our behalf. If you believe that that's what he did for you at the cross and this symbolic meal is for you, this is how, even as unfaith, if I've, through the sermon this morning, if I made you feel guilty, if I made you feel less than, listen, here's where you're reminded what you are, completely righteous before Christ, completely perfect before God, because your sin has already been judged. I want to be more like Jesus. I want you to be more like Jesus but you'll not be judged based on how close you get to that for your eternity's sake. Because he was. He was condemned and now there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we remember. As the men come forward, we pray for the bread. Father God, you gave your son to be crushed for our iniquities. You gave your son to be judged for our sins. You gave your son to be crucified under the wrath of God that should be aimed at us. But you offered his life as a substitute for ours. And we're here now to remember what you did and what he did on our behalf. We thank you for his faithfulness that stood in the place of our unfaithfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name.